Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. months ago, I was blessed with a a 12-week sabbatical from my job here at Cornerstone, and it was a time of rest and rejuvenation that I've obviously now returned from. But I started my time away by heading down to my parents' house in San Diego to go and visit them, and they were so excited to see me and more excited to see my son. And so we we get into the house, and the first thing I do, I kind of acknowledge my parents, and I walk straight to the refrigerator because that's what you do when you go to your parents' house see what the fridge situation is like. And I go over there, and my dad's like, what are you doing? You're going to eat us out of house and home again. And I'm like, please don't be so rude. I'm hungry. And and I go to open the fridge, and I noticed something was different from my time growing up. And, And I remember when I was growing up, I always had a piece of artwork that I had created hanging on the fridge that that, that was just beautiful and inspiring for everyone that, that saw it. But now, instead of my artwork hanging on the fridge, there was artwork that my son had made my mom hanging where my artwork used to hang. And I said, Mom, what's the deal? Am I being replaced? And she said, yes. <laughs> and so, so I started talking to my mom about that. I was like, well, do you have any of the artwork I used to make for you? And she's like, of course, I save everything. And, and I said, can I see it? And she let me see it. And I took a picture for you guys to see the artwork that I used to create for my mom. Like, I was proud of this. I don't even know what this is. Like, it's a star with twigs coming out. I, like, I don't, the shading is pretty good. Uh, the block letters are awesome. But this is, this is something that I was really excited about. Everyone who walked into our house could see this, and I, and I made it to make my mom happy, and somehow this made my mom happy. And like I said, I was so proud of it, which I think is true of most kids, and probably we're all kind of like this in some way or another, we are proud of what we create. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul wrote, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word handiwork that we read right here in Paul's letter to the church is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English words for poems or poetry and and what what we're communicated, what's being communicated here by Paul is that you are God's poem. You are his artwork. He is proud of what he creates. Last week we learned that God 
has a plan for everything, for all of creation. And in light of what we learned last week and what Paul writes here in, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, we can conclude that God has written two poetic masterpieces, two great divine poems, one in the physical creation that we interact with on a daily basis and another in the lives of men and women redeemed and saved by his grace. So do we understand what it means that we are God's handiwork, his artwork. Art, art is beautiful. It's, it's valuable. It is an expression of the inner being of the artist. So imagine what that means. You are beautiful. You are valuable. You are an expression of the divine artist. We are God's masterpiece. Like the first word of our series, we are made, we are created. But in light of our series title, what does it mean to be made for more? If I really am God's masterpiece, his, art, his artwork, then what is this poema made for? We'll get into that in a little bit, but first let me just say it's so good to be here with you and to be with all of you on all of our campuses. And for those joining online that are in the chat room chatting right now, hope you're doing great. Also, hello to our brothers and sisters in the incarcerated church. So glad you're with us for the second week of our series, Made for More. Made for More. So, what were you made for? What are you made for? What are you created for? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Like, what am I doing? Why do I do what I do? Is it, is it to put food on the table? Is it so my family has a roof over their head? Is it so people view me a certain way? Or is it somehow tied to my God-given purpose? I wrestled with this a bit while I was away, which is what I think you do when you don't work for three months and you just sit around and think. You start asking the big questions. Uh, I started asking, like, what is my purpose? What, what am I here for? What am I here for? You know, I actually get to talk to a lot of people who end up asking this very question. People who are processing, like, what, what is their existence all about? What is their purpose? And it's, it's people of all ages, but to be honest, often I'll get older folks who want to talk to me, and they're like, hey, I need to, I need to get your advice on this in, in a way that maybe I haven't thought about before. They'll say, Steve, I've had a successful career. I've built this and, and I've built that. I've worked hard, but now I want to do something meaningful. Coincidentally enough, I never have conversations with people seeking my advice where they begin the conversation by saying, Steve, I've done so many meaningful things in my life. So, so much purpose has been found by the way I've gone about my business. I've added so much value. Is there anything you know of that will just be a giant waste of my time? No one ever asks me this because everyone wants to mean something. Everyone wants to leave their mark because there is something in me and there is something in you that wants more. Anyone who has ever wrestled with the question of purpose, the what am I here for question, hopes that they were made for more. And that thing in us that wants more, I think it's bigger than just a longing or a desire, but rather it's tied to the fact that we are God's poema. The way in which we were created makes us long for more. And I think we see a great example of this through one of my favorite characters in the Bible. 
and her name is Esther, and we're going to look at her story today. So go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 1 in your Bibles or your Bible apps. Uh, For those of you that are newer to opening up a Bible, the book is in the Old Testament after Nehemiah and before Job and Psalms. If you open your Bible up right to the middle, you'll see that you're probably going to be right around the book of Psalms. So you just got to flip back to the left a little bit. Esther chapter 1. And let me give you a little context. Um, Esther's story begins with King Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, then you've got a picture. But Xerxes is an older, self-involved, power-hungry king whose kingdom, the Persian Empire, spanned from Asia Minor all the way down to Africa. So with this map here, you get an idea for how massive this empire was that he ruled over. And when we meet when we meet Xerxes here in Esther chapter 1, we, we see that he's right in the middle of throwing a party. And not just any party, but look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, chapter 1 verse 4, for, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. That is six months of partying. I guess when you're king, you don't have to fight for your right to party. You just party. And that's what he did for six months. And then that party ended after six months. And he's like, you know what we need to do now? We need to have another party. So he threw another party. He had a banquet. And at this banquet, people were allowed to drink with no restrictions. We read that in verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So they were in a specific mindset by the time this banquet was going on. And we read that when the king was merry with wine, he commanded his servants to bring his queen so that he could show off his beautiful queen to all of his guests. But his queen, Queen Vashti, when, he, when she got the, the request, she said something pretty interesting. She said, no, I'm good. I'm not going to go do that. Now, this angered the king. If you oversee an empire as big as the Persian Empire and and everyone bows down to you and and they they surrender to you and they, they fear you, people usually don't say no to you. So when Vashti said no to the king, it infuriated him because it made him look bad. So he decreed that she could never, ever, ever be in the king's presence again and that he was going to get a new king or a new queen. So his personal attendants hear that, I've had three months off, I'm I'm getting, this isn't as easy as it looks. Um, His personal attendants hear that that he's going to get a new queen, so they're like, hey, you know what you should do? Let's do a giant search that spans all 127 different provinces that you oversee, and each province will put forward one person as candidate for queen. It was like a big Miss Persia pageant to discover, and I quote, look at chapter two, verse four, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, before we move any further into this story, I just wanna kind of preface what we're about to walk through by saying that this story that we read here in, throughout the book of Esther is riddled with the objectification of women and extreme prejudice. You'll read this and hear this and we'll process and learn about this story today and you'll get a sense of tremendous injustice. 
but know that as we read, God desperately wanted to save his people because he made them for more than the fear and horrors that they were subjected to. Justice would prevail because God's character and his heart are always bigger than cultural ignorance. And so as we, as we read and we learn today, don't miss the way in which God spits in the face of misogyny and racism. And he does it by using a young minority woman to bring about his heart of compassion and judgment. One of the contestants in this beauty pageant the king orchestrated was the young minority woman that I just referred to, a Jewish girl named Esther, who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and from everything we read, she was a very beautiful woman, which is why she ended up making it to the finals of King Xerxes' search. Now, throughout this text, we never read what Esther hoped her life would become. We don't know what she dreamt about or, or, or hoped for. Maybe she was excited about potentially living the life of luxury. Maybe she dreaded living the life as queen, potentially. Either way, here she is getting ready to go before the king. And getting ready to go before the king was no simple task. She actually had to prepare for 12 months before her first date with the king. It was extremely rigorous and, and, and something that I've never heard of, that you would prepare for 12 months for a first date. And when the time came for the, for the king to meet Esther, he was attracted to her more than any of the other girls. Xerxes chose Esther to be his queen. She won the contest. So the king, after the contest was over and he picked his queen, he did what the king does and he threw a party and from the outside perspective, it looked like Esther's purpose, the thing that she was made for, was to literally be King Xerxes' trophy wife. But right around this time, the king's second-in-command, a man named Haman, felt extremely insulted by Esther's cousin, the guy who raised her, Mordecai, because look at chapter 3, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. And this outraged Haman. He was, he was so power obsessed and so insecure that his plan for revenge against Mordecai was not just to destroy Mordecai, but to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the entire nation, of, of, of the entire Jewish nation that was in the kingdom. And it was a plan that he eventually tricked Xerxes to sign off on. When cousin Mordecai heard about the impending devastation of the Jewish people, he was like, we are in trouble. He knew that they were without hope except for one person. He knew that they had one hope, Esther. God's plan for his people was all on her shoulders, and she didn't even know it yet. At least not until Mordecai said, hey, you need to go to the king. And when Esther heard this from Mordecai, when, when she got word that Mordecai was saying, you need to go see the king, she was like, hold on a minute. There's one problem. We got one issue here. The law clearly states that anyone who goes before the king without being summoned by the king is to be punished by death. So this is an issue. Mordecai is essentially asking the girl he raised to risk her life, to take on something that she was not trained for. I mean, she was supposed to be a beauty queen. That's what she was made for. 
But Mordecai spoke words to Esther that clearly communicated something that went beyond all that. Mordecai knew Esther was made for more. So much so that she was positioned to save an entire nation of people. And he said something to Esther that would stick with her for the rest of her life. And any one of us who's ever read the book of Esther has memorized this question that Mordecai poses to Esther in this moment. Here's what he says. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Great question. Even better response. Look at her response with me, which, by the way, this is such a great response. Anytime we're wrestling with what God calls us to, if you have questions about your purpose, do what Esther does here. Seek God alongside of others. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. She says, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my descendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And look what she says at the end. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. John Ortberg, in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, writes something that is so fitting for this story and our conversation this week. Here's what he says. Discovering what is needed to fulfill the meaning of your life is not the same thing as being successful. And it is never easy. But deep in our souls, we know an easy mission is not what we were made for. And I love how he ends this thought. It will not thrill us. No one ever went to see a movie called Mission Not So Difficult. (laughs) If I perish, I perish. I mean, that sounds like mission pretty dang close to impossible, if you ask me. But this is what she was made for. This is why God positioned her where he did. She wasn't made to be the king's beauty queen. She was made for more. After the third day of prayer and fasting, Esther stood in the inner courts and waited for the king. She waited to talk to him and have a conversation with him, wondering if this would be her last night on earth, the last night that she would be breathing any sort of oxygen. Because what she was about to do was punishable by death. But when the the king saw Esther, he looked at her and he said, what's your request? And what Esther does here just shows the extreme levels of emotional intelligence and awareness that she has because instead of just shouting, hey, I'm Jewish and you're about to to murder all of my people, you issued a, a decree calling for genocide, this is gonna be bad, you need to fix this. Instead of doing that, she went, you know what this king likes? He likes to party. So she threw him a party and invited him to the party. To make a short story a bit shorter, um, I'd encourage you to read the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters long, and if you want to get a full picture of of all the details that go into this story, just read this story. Maybe read it as a family. Read it with with your community group, whatever you want to do. But it's so good. But, But to kind of wrap it all up, through a crazy turn of events, the king found out that Esther's cousin, Mordecai, had once saved his life like years before. This is the same guy, if we remember, that wouldn't bow before Haman. And so when the king found this out, he honored Mordecai and elevated him to positions that Haman really wanted. And 
he, in the process, uncovered the evil, arrogant, prideful Haman's plan to murder all of the queen's people. He realized that how deceptive it was and how he got tricked into it. And so once he had this figured out, King Xerxes ordered that Haman be murdered for his treachery. And that's when we get to the conclusion of our story. After a few parties, when a young woman, young minority woman, finally presents her request to the king, look at um, chapter 8, verse 6. This is what Esther asks of the king. She says, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? See, the salvation of a nation was on Esther's shoulders. And with extreme bravery and courage, she stepped into exactly what she was positioned for when she was positioned for it. And she came through. The king lifted the decree. The Jewish people were no longer in danger. Her ultimate purpose was to save a nation, and she did. The Jewish people were rescued. Their lives were spared, and they were able to thrive because of Esther's actions. Now, this is important for our conversation today about, pur- about purpose, about what we are made for, because of what we learn from how Esther responded. Let's remember that she spent years with the king. She spent years preparing for the king and then being with the king. She didn't know that this is how her life would end up. She didn't know that this is how her story would go. She didn't know what everything was leading toward. But one vital part of Esther's story that we have to recognize was that the question about her purpose was not simply, what am I here for? It wasn't that question that I told you I was wrestling with during my time away. This wasn't just her question. This was actually more Haman and Xerxes' question. They were concerned about the what. What can I acquire? What can I obtain? What can I do to be safe? What can I do to be secure? What can I do to, 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 to just get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier? They were in it for the what. But Esther's question was more than that. Her question changed from what am I here for to who am I here for? This one word, when we think about purpose, this one word in this question changes everything. You see, a life lived for others will always be more rewarding than a life lived for me. Esther could have easily, easily discarded what Mordecai was asking of her. When her cousin said, hey, can you go to the king? You need to go to the king. She could have just said, no, I'm good. I'm going to continue to live the life of luxury. But she was made for more, and she recognized that her purpose is always found beyond what was best for her, because our purpose is always found beyond what's best for me. Before we move on, just sit for a moment and think about the ramifications of this sentence. Purpose is always found beyond what's best for me. In Matthew chapter 28, Right before Jesus leaves the earth and ascends to heaven, he leaves instructions for his followers. He gives them their directive. We call it the Great Commission. What were these instructions that Jesus left us? What's the Great Commission, the great assignment, the the great purpose? Did he say, go into all the nations and follow all my rules so that you know you are good to go at the end of your life? No. The Great Commission is about Other people, go and make disciples. Take the good news of Jesus to someone else. You see, this is not a faith about you. It's a faith about how you fit into the bigger picture. The Christian faith is a faith about we, a faith about us. Remember, the question isn't what am I here for? The question is 
Who am I here for? Because if our purpose is all about ourselves, then it's not purpose. If your life is all about you, it will always leave you feeling like you were made for more. Because if you're only concerned about you, at the end of the day, all you're going to have to show for it is you. In his book, Ego is the Enemy, Ryan Holiday writes, if what matters is you, your reputation, your inclusion, your personal ease of life, your path is clear. Tell people what they want to hear. Seek attention over the important but quiet work. Pay your dues, check the boxes, put in your time, and leave things essentially as they are. But if your purpose is something larger than you, that's when we find meaning. That's when we leave a mark. Because when it comes to anything that we do, we have an opportunity to ask maybe one of the most important questions we can ask. Not what is this for, but who is this for? Who is this for? When it's all said and done, if you want more than yourself to show for it, then figure out who God placed you here for. You know, Esther had more than herself to show for it. We just worked through a book about her that was written thousands of years ago. I'd say she left her mark. I'd say she, she had a life that was meaningful. She saved an entire nation of people. And it wasn't because she did what was best for her. Think about it. What would have been best for Esther? From an outside perspective, she was the queen of a massive empire. She had all the fame and fortune a person could imagine. She was never going to want for anything ever again in her life. And no one was ever going to dare harm her. She was wealthy, admired, safe, and secure. Talk to anyone in the Bay Area and ask what they want in life. And I'm willing to bet that one of those four words is going to show up in the conversation eventually. Wealthy, admired, safe, secure. It's what we're told to chase after and strive for. This is what our culture dictates for us. If you want to be happy, if you want to know what your life is for, get paid, get recognized, make sure you are taken care of because what we deserve, what I deserve, takes precedence. I mean, if we think about Esther, didn't she deserve to maintain her lifestyle? After everything she went through to get to the place she was at, wouldn't she have been well within her rights to just ignore Mordecai, to live the life she was living? So why risk it? Like, why, why even risk giving all of that up? Because she had purpose. And she knew that God's purpose has to be bigger than what we deserve. Don't miss this. God's purpose for us has to be bigger than our rights. The beautiful thing that she realized, and hopefully we realize, is that we have an opportunity to, to surrender our rights and say, God, I just want to live out of your purpose. Is this your prayer? Do we really feel this way? Or do we posture ourselves more before God, saying, God, I need you to make me happy? I need you to help me figure out what I should own, what I should acquire, what will, what will keep me safe and secure. God, here's what I deserve. Make sure I get it. See, I wholeheartedly believe that if we posture ourselves as men and women who just want to live out of the purpose God has for us, that we will see we were made for more. 
And when we grasp this, maybe we will respond the same way Esther did. Just to recap, real quick, this is, this is the way in which Esther responded. She acted when it was her time. Who knows that you are in your royal position for such a time as this. And then when she acted, she was also willing to pay the cost. If I perish, I perish. And in doing so, she met a huge need. She saved a whole nation when she said, how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? I hope that this is how we will respond that we'll recognize when it's our time, that we'll, we will count the cost and pay it, and we'll see a, need, uh, see a need and meet it. Because here's the deal, church. I can unashamedly tell you right now that this is your time. This is our time, Cornerstone. We were put into position right here in the East Bay for such a time as this. It's why you don't want to miss the next two weeks of church. Just a quick side note. Do not miss the next two weeks here. Next week, Pastor Steve's going to walk through why we are here as a church, and he's already been processing a little bit of where he's going. You do not want to miss next week, and then the following week where we talk about on all of our campuses where we're going as a campus. God has big plans for, for Cornerstone Fellowship. He has big plans for the East Bay, and so I want to encourage you, whether you're watching online or wh whether you're in the building or, or on any of our campuses, do not miss the next two weeks. Commit to being here. Because this is our time, not some other time, not some other situation, not tomorrow, not yesterday. I believe that we don't get to choose our time, but our time chooses us, and we are where we are for a reason. God has placed each of us in the path of people whose lives will forever be changed because of the beautiful picture of God, the poema of God that they see in you. I mean, come on, we, we live in one of the wealthiest areas in the world, and at the same time, one of the most spiritually impoverished places on the planet. We are surrounded by a massive majority of people who are going through life struggling to see the, the beautiful artwork that God created them to be. And it's not hard for us to picture, like, I'm sure you can see it. Maybe I've got a little inside track here because I've been a pastor in this area for 10 years, and I see people walking into the doors of all of our campuses week after week just saying, I need hope. That's why they come. I need hope. Can you please point me in the direction of some hope? I saw it when I was a youth pastor here. I remember 10 years ago, I taught a sermon to our students about the importance of not holding our secrets in and how damaging secrets can be to our soul. So I, I the team came up with this idea, and we said, you know what, let's have students write down their secrets and share them with us. And we were expecting students to say, like, hey, uh, I'm struggling with this addiction, or I'm, I'm worried about partying, or I've, I've got some things that I'm, that I'm kind of nervous about. But when we got these postcards back from the students, I, I took them up to my office, and I was reading them, a couple hundred postcards. And postcard after postcard, the things that I was reading were, I don't know if I want to live anymore. I don't know if I can go another day. I don't know if anyone loves me. I don't know if anyone cares about me. And this was 10 years ago. Some of you that are here right now wrote on some of those cards. And the crazy thing is that none of this has changed. Like I was just talking to my buddy and he said that his wife was, was judging an art contest in San Ramon for seventh graders last week. And, and, and as she judged the contest, she was looking at eight straight paintings and she had to run to the principal's office to say, are you getting these kids any help? Because eight straight paintings dealt with either death, destruction, or, or some, side of, some sort of demonic influence. These are 12 and 13-year-olds right here in the East Bay who are just longing for hope. I don't know about you, but that's unacceptable to me. 
I hope it's unacceptable to you. I hope we all feel a sense of responsibility for the kids in our own community to know the hope that we know. And to, to add on top of that, if the kids are feeling this way, is this not an indication of the households in the community at large? I mean, how many of our coworkers, how many of our neighbors, how many of our friends, our kids, our parents, our spouses are feeling like there's a massive chasm between them and any semblance of hope? We are the agents of hope for them. That's why we're here. It's not some secret that we're holding on to. We know the hope of the world in, found in Jesus Christ. This is what we need to share. But I don't want to just stop there because I know that even as I say that, there are folks here right now that are struggling with this same thing. They're struggling with loneliness and isolation, a void of hope in their life. And I just want you to look at me. If that's you, if that's you, if you're struggling with any of those things, we want to know what you would write on your postcard as well, just like I had my students do 10 years ago. you got to tell someone. Please let us know how we can help you. Let us know where you're struggling. Because maybe God has brought you here to this church for this specific time in your life to heal and offer you hope, to show you the beautiful poema that God created you to be. It is okay to not be okay. But let us help you discover the more that you were made for so that you don't have to stay that way. Now, maybe, maybe for some of us, even hearing Esther's story makes you feel a little insignificant or, or, or hopeless. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm never going to live up to that. She saved an entire nation. That's so big. My purpose can't be that noteworthy. To be, to be honest, I struggle with that same thing. I'm constantly like, God, I don't know if I'm ever going to live up to what I think your expectation is of me. But let me just say a couple things to that. First of all, Esther didn't know how huge her purpose was until after she was able to look back on it. And you may not know how grand your purpose is until you have an opportunity to look back on it as well. Secondly, if you haven't figured out what it is that God wants for you, don't use, please, please don't use the ease of your life or, or your happiness as a litmus test for whether or not you are living out of your purpose. Because oftentimes when we live out of the purpose God has for us, it can be very difficult. You may be even stuck in a situation right now where you can't see how God is working or moving, but you were made with a purpose and for a purpose, so please do not quit. And lastly, lastly, don't underestimate the life change that someone may experience through you. If one person's eternity is altered or shifted because they encountered you, if they experience hope because they stumbled upon you, that is no small thing. That is exceptionally significant. Look, no one's asking us as, as, or you as individuals to, to save an entire nation like Esther. No one's asking you to even save the entire East Bay. But what I would encourage you to do is do for one person what you wish you could do for every person. That's how we're going to be able to make change right here in our communities. Don't miss the fact that you are the one who lives next to your neighbors. You are the one who works next to your coworkers. You are the one raising your kids. This is your time. This is our time. So let's start asking ourselves now, am I willing to pay the cost? Will I meet the need? Will I look for my purpose beyond what is best for me? Who am I here for? I'll close with this. Don't ever miss the fact that we are God's handiwork, his poem, his artistic 
expression. But remember the end of that verse that we read earlier from Paul. Created in Jesus to do good works. Think about this. Art isn't just created for the enjoyment of the artist. Sure, it meets a need for the artist, but it doesn't stop there. Because art is created to bring life and and hope or, or energy or excitement or passion or meaning or new understanding or a new way of looking at the world to anyone who stumbles upon that art. And I think the same is true for us. One of my son's favorite things to do is to grab a stack of paper and draw pictures, write words, and put stickers on every single page and then staple them together and make a book. Sometimes these books are about 30 pages long, and all he wants to do is bring the book to me and make me look through every single page and look at every detail on every single page because every page is important to him. It's all part of the whole. So we sit there and look through every single page regardless of what awesome sports event is on the television right when he asks me. And just between you and me, his artwork is not good. Like, I'm sure as seven-year-olds go, he's fine, but I don't see an art scholarship anywhere in the future for my son. Now, while it may not seem like it, I love, I love looking through those books with him because he's so proud of what he creates. And he doesn't just create it for his pleasure or his enjoyment. He makes it to share with me. And after every time we look through that book, he always says, Dad, don't you want one too? I guess, son. (laughs) Don't you think God's the same way with us? His handiwork, his poem, his art made in Christ Jesus to do good works. He creates us so that every page would be part of the whole. That every page would speak to God's creativity and power and grace and love as we bring energy and passion and meaning and new understanding to anyone who stumbles upon us. And I think that as they do, God is looking down saying, look what I made. Isn't it great? Don't you want this too? Our purpose is always found beyond what's best for me. Because each and every single person that can hear these words coming out of my mouth right now was made for more. Let's pray. God, you are... I mean, I can't even use words to describe how incredible you are with your creativity and, and, and imagination and the way that you just, you, you, you create us, God. The way that you make us is so incredible. And then to take that one step further, further, Father, the fact that you use us, that you desire to use us to further your purpose, your mission, your vision for the world is crazy to me because I know how messed up of a, per, of a person I am. But God, you still choose us. Because it's not about us, it's about how we fit together to to advance your kingdom, God, that we can bring the good news of your son to people who are without hope, that, that just need help, that need meaning. So Father, help us to recognize that you created us for more, that our purpose goes beyond what's best for us, God, so that someone else might be able to experience the hope that we know. It's so beautiful, it's so perfect. It's such a it's such a gift, God. Gratitude doesn't even begin to explain the feeling we have for you and who you are to us. So Father, I ask and I pray that we do our best to show you how thankful we are for the beautiful poems you've made each of us to be. Let us be a true expression of you, the divine artist. We love you, we adore you, we praise you, we glorify you. 
And we pray all of this in the, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.